looking at Psalm 90, which was the song of the month we'll be singing at the end of the worship service. Uh, Psalm 90, satisfied with God's love. Uh, John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that love, God's love, is all we need to have complete fulfillment. It is the only means of true satisfaction. Uh, But we have repetitively spurned real satisfaction in the pursuit of the fraud this world offers. And And just take a look at our world. It is in constant search for purpose, for fulfillment, for meaning. The grasping permeates their thoughts, their actions, their everything. Yet when we look at the church, the ones who are supposed to be the bride of Christ, the ones that claim to be God's children, we also find the same grasping at fulfillment, purpose, and satisfaction. It appears we only are fulfilled in God when we get what we want out of this life. We're satisfied in God when we have the right health, the right house, the right family, the right friends, the right finances. We'll say our satisfaction rests in him, but remove any of the above components, and that statement crumbles like a house of cards. So how do we become truly satisfied in God? And and by that I mean solely satisfied in God, that it's not contingent upon how life is going. It's not contingent on what is going on, how well I'm doing, if I'm achieving my, my temporal dreams, if, if everything's as I thought it would be and as I planned, how are we satisfied in his immense and overwhelmingly gracious love, satisfied even when the frills of this life are gone or over, when the important things of this life seem to be lacking, like health? Where do we turn to find that answer? And that's why we land on Psalm 90, because it's a great place to start that journey. It's penned by Moses. So that makes this the first psalm ever written. Moses writes it uh, for us as a psalm that hides none of the hard realities of life. Moses is writing, and if you read this psalm, and we are going to read it all the way through, he doesn't sugarcoat what's taking place. The wrath of God encompasses most of the psalm. The idea that, that life is trouble and has affliction and that we're working through sorrow is, is woven throughout the psalm. It engages boldly with the hard realities of life, but it closes with this clarion call to be satisfied completely in the Lord and to seek his favor. Interestingly, Moses didn't write this psalm after an amazing victory or even a specific high point in his life. Instead, he wrote this while wandering with the nation of Israel through the desert, wandering with a generation that he knew and they knew were dying off due to their sin of refusing to enter the promised land, wandering with absolutely no place to call home on earth. If you go to the book of Numbers, which we're studying on Wednesday night, there's very little verses written about those 40 years. Uh, What we do see written in those 40 years or about those 40 years is failure. You see failure after failure after failure. Israel rebels multiple times. Moses himself strikes a rock and in a rare moment takes the glory for himself. His punishment for that is that he will never enter the promised land. But this 
in the midst of all of that, in the midst of, of unfulfillment and unachieved, here is his prayer to God. In the midst of what I would consider the worst, here is a call for true satisfaction that only can be found in the one true God. So I come back to that pressing question uh, we talk about, how do we find this purpose and fulfillment? What does it take uh, to be satisfied with God, satisfied with his immense and gracious love? Well, first, uh, we need to understand the eternality of God. If you have your Bible, Psalm 90, we read here, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And what Moses is saying is that God is our sovereign as well as our shelter. And because he is sovereign, because he is eternal, he uniquely is able to be our forever home where we dwell. Nothing else could ever be truly stable. And I know we live in a fairly stable world, and so we get comfortable with what this world provides, what we can provide for ourselves, the homes and the life that we've built, but everything can be taken from us, and Moses is acutely aware of that reality. And I'm not trying to be depressing this morning, I'm trying to confront us with how temporal life really is, and that's what Moses is trying to share here. I want you to think about it from Moses's and then really all of Israel's circumstances at this moment. They've refused to enter God's promised land, which would have been home, would have been the homeland, would have been the country, and are sent to wander the desert as their whole generation dies off. They will never have a place to call home. The holidays back on the farm are non-existent. The history or legacy, the feeling of stability from a temporal perspective will never be theirs. And let it sink in a little bit. Moses is never going to enter the promised land. He is who God calls to bring his people out of Egypt, uniquely called and uniquely is meek before God, but he will never step foot. He'll never build a house. He'll never have a farm. He'll never plant a crop in the promised land. He will never have a physical home, and neither will this whole generation of Israelites to whom he is writing and singing this psalm. Uh, by the way, this, uh, the book of Psalms is, is broken up into five books. This one kicks off book four, a division in there, and it's the worshipful psalms. Moses' psalm leads off in what Israel would have sang for worship, uh, back to God to speak to him. And so think about where they are. They don't have what we oftentimes grab as our dwelling place, as our comfort, as our security, as our stability, as the place where we feel safe, the place that we come back to. That is not possible for Moses and the nation of Israel. Yet what they have, and this is what Moses is trying to say, is infinitely beyond those things. Without taking anything away from that, without taking the enjoyment God gives with those things, what Israel has while wandering through the desert, what Moses has and he's trying to share with us is infinitely beyond all of those things. Their dwelling place is the eternal Lord who formed the world and is above everything in the world. God is their dwelling place and he has been for generations. 
You read through the Old Testament, you start in Genesis, Abraham wanders around because God is Abraham's dwelling place. God is Isaac's dwelling place. God is Jacob's dwelling place. God has been their forever home. And so when you look at Israel over and over, and what Moses is trying to drive him to is this understanding that God has forever been their focal point. He's forever been their destination of their whole existence. To tie it to us, in all generations, God's children take refuge in him. We are never homeless in Christ. Now that becomes poignantly conscious to us when we're in a place where all of this world's goods are stripped away. As you go to believers around the world, there's some that are displaced, that their home is burned, they're kicked out of the village, they lose quote-unquote, the family farm that goes back seven generations. They're run out of their countries. They understand this, that they're never homeless in God. We are so enamored with what we have that we can't see that God is the forever home and that it's possible only because God is infinite. Before our time and space began, He was already. He has always been And so Moses writes, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And to jump back forward, so his everlasting nature, that he has been God forever, makes it possible for him to be our dwelling place. But is that how you see God? Is he your forever home, your only real stable dwelling place? Or are we constantly attempting to replace him with something of our own making. And I, when I was writing this, I'm thinking about all the things that I enjoy, the comforts I like, and how easy it is for that to creep in and to be more important than his forever dwelling place. To be satisfied in God and his love requires us to realize that he alone can be our dwelling place, our satisfaction, because he alone is eternal. And the next portion of this psalm will confront the ridiculousness of attempting to find a substitute for him. Because humankind's finiteness, the fact that we are not infinite, stands in stark contrast to God's infinity, a reality that is critical to grasp if we're really going to be satisfied in God. You see, you have to understand or you need to understand the brevity of humanity. We need to grasp that God is eternal. That he has been God before the world was created, that he owns everything, made everything, everything is his, that he uniquely can be our dwelling place, that true satisfaction is found only in him. And then along with that, and, and Moses takes quite a bit of time to beat into our heads the idea that we have a very short time, the brevity of humanity. I'm going to look at verses 3 through 12 and read them and just kind of follow along in your Bible, and kind of think through this. It says, Thou turnest man to destruction, and and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. In other words, you're asleep, and someone's watching for four hours, and it's over before you know it. That's to God what a thousand years is. goes on, Thou carriest them away as with a flood, they are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. 
Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. Even if you make it to 80, it's still filled with work and pain. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. And then 12, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Moses would have stepped out of his tent, so to speak, if that's the context, as they're wandering around, and every morning would have had a picture of this reality, the brevity of human life. A million plus people are dying in 40 years, the punishment from God. People are dying constantly. He's going to recognize the direct correlation of sin to judgment and understand that God does not and cannot tolerate or accept our unholiness. So he begins by acknowledging something about us, that our time is short. He starts off by saying we're set for destruction. The word in Hebrew means to be pulverized. When something's pulverized, it goes to dust, which is what we return to, from dust to dust. But, but the word in Hebrew is very active. We will be destroyed, pulverized, going back to where we came. We look at time, and we recognize we do not control it. It marches forward, and we cannot stop or alter it at all. No matter how rich you are, no matter how powerful you are, you can't stop time. And you can watch people floundering and attempting to do it, but they cannot get a grip on time. Time is something you cannot hold on to. You can't keep. And then Moses contrasts for us, God does control time and is above it. We're the exact opposite. We're enslaved to time as we must function within its parameters and really are given a short stint of it here on earth. As verse 10 says, you get 70 years and maybe 80 if you're super strong, but they're going to be filled with work and trouble, and they're quickly gone. God looks at a thousand years like you look at a nap. But you get 70 to 80 years, and you're going to wrestle and fight through this world. We have to recognize that humanity's time on earth is short, and it has a predictable end. We're set for destruction. Why? Because our sin is judged Moses doesn't miss out on God's wrath. It's not over. Uh, in our world, it's not the most popular topic, right? People want to talk about God's love, which is real. He has a real holy love. We're going to be satisfied in his love. But to understand how much he loves you and why we can be satisfied in it, you have to get a grip on the fact that God's wrath is poured out against sin. As one commentator noted, it says, since man is a sinner, all his life is spent under God's wrath, and that sin makes our lives here transitory, which I had to look it up to, not permanent. Our life is not permanent. Though death was not the original order of things, God didn't create us to die from sin. It is the effect of our turning from God. It is the result of our sin, and Moses understood that principle well. He watched Israel constantly face the direct punishment of their rebellion. He watched as they constantly persisted in their sin. When you read through Numbers and what you get in the 40 years of wandering is rebellion after rebellion after rebellion, you think, wow, 
of all the things they could talk about while wandering the desert, they just constantly fought against God. They constantly persisted in their sin as they were living out the punishment for their sin. Moses knew what it meant for God's wrath and judgment to be poured out. He watched it over and over again. I can't remember all the figures, but uh, for all of those people to die in that time span, I think they were burying like 15 to 20 people daily or even more than that. It was just, I can't remember all the breakdown, but basically there was funeral after funeral after funeral after funeral, so much so that in the middle of numbers, God gives them an alternate way to have cleansing from being in contact with death because so much death would be encountered. And this is the reality that comes forward and Moses wants us to see. Sin is not casual. We take sin casually. We tend to look at sin and brush it away. Well, you know, he messed up. Oh, well, that happens. This is what we do. This is life. This is how God made me. We take sin very casually. And we have to remember something about sin. It is currently under the wrath of God. And God's wrath is not a light matter that we tend to treat it that way. Uh, to kind of rework what we read in a short way, we are brought to an end by his anger. We're dismayed by his wrath. Our days pass away under that wrath. And none of our sin is hidden from him. The reality is sin is not secret. God has set our iniquities in front of him. It is known. And you might wonder, Kenny, what does this have to do with being satisfied with God's love? We well, have to understand who you are to really grasp the satisfaction that can come from God's love. When you go all the way back to God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you have to remember how wicked and vile this world is, how awful we are, how there's no hope in ourselves. See, we tend to be insensitive to the brevity of life and the reality of God's wrath. We love to brush that aside. We love to not be moved by it. We love to not have that change how we react and what we do. We ignore it, and so we're duped into chasing the fraudulent satisfaction we think is possible from this life. When we don't understand who we are in God's eyes, when we don't understand what the, the weight of sin is, what God's wrath really is, that it's actually not some distant thing, it's there. And you might say, well, you're reading in the Old Testament. You can go to John 3.36, and it says that if you haven't believed in the Son, you're under God's wrath in this moment. God's wrath is on sin now. It's not just a future look. It is a today look. And we're very insensitive to that. And so we search this world looking for something that's not possible. But Moses gives us a simple solution and plea. Our response is clear. So teach us, he says, to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Derek Kidner notes this, Moses does not want death stalled or waived. He's not praying to God and saying, stall death. Give us a thousand years. Give us more time. Give us everything. He doesn't want it stalled. Instead, he desires to see human life from the timetable of God and to live accordingly. Another writer stated, we will trust in our own abilities too much and seek satisfaction in things that we will inevitably lose. So we must diligently seek to understand our mortality, not to be depressed, because that's what happens. 
we, we sink into this purposelessness. It ebbs away because even the richest and most powerful and seemingly happy people, when you pause time or you make them sit down or they do sit down, look at life and they can't find reason there. We need to look at our mortality, not to be depressed, but instead to be wise and live life from God's perspective and with God as the reward. Too often we number our days and then buckle down to pursuing satisfaction, fulfillment, legacy from the temporal possibilities of this world. I want you to pause a second and actually process that. How much of your evaluation of time centers around you living your life and doing all the things on it? How often do you see the numbering of your days and then you have this bucket list that must be accomplished or a legacy that you have to have written because, man, you need a legacy, right? See, I'm not advocating for a squandering of time that we've been giving, but I want us to confront our hearts on the aim of our lives, the value system we give our lives, and on whether or not we are really applying godly wisdom to it. Live your life completely fully, be purposeful, but when all of it centers on a temporal goal, you realize that there's no purpose there. This is all gone. All the trees we plant, all the houses we build, all the things that we accomplish, whether it's from nature or from what we construct, it all gets burned up. It doesn't have any permanency at all. See, all of these thoughts for Moses, when he thought those, and again, remember, he's confronted with this daily, led him to pray passionately to God for connection and comprehension. He wanted to see and embrace God in all of his wondrous character because if we're to find true satisfaction, we need to understand the immensity of his love. Look at verse 13. This is what Pastor Theron read. It says, Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy. And, and the Hebrew word there that's translated mercy here actually is more specifically translated loyal love or unfailing love. And so if you're reading this from, a, from a, uh, that word as it would flow for us, it would be, oh, satisfy us early with thy loyal love, with that remaining love, the unfailing love. In other words, what we can bank on, what will never go away. And it says that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us, this is his prayer to God, make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory under their children, which is a powerful verse. He's saying for Israel right then, help this generation see your work. And then he speaks to the next generation that's going to enter the promised land. Make sure the next generation sees your glory. Help us see what you're doing, God, and help them see who you are. And then it goes on, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. I'm going to do a circle back to Moses' life. Three parts, really. Raised a prince of Egypt 40 years. The world power 
He is raised in Pharaoh's home as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He cannot be higher in life from the world's standpoint. He chooses to identify with his people, with God's people. He murders an Egyptian, which wasn't what would be condoned by God, but he he commits murder. And then he has to hide in the desert with nomadic Midianites for 40 years. Prince to no home, but he does get a wife and family. He then leads Israel out of slavery, but they reject God at the promised land. And now he is again wandering the desert 40 years. And let me remind you, he will not enter the promised land. From a temporal viewpoint, he never fully wins. If you're writing the history of any leader, he never makes it. He never gets to conquer the promised land. He never gets the castle on a hill. He never gets any of that. From a temporal viewpoint, because we read scripture and we read about Moses and he's referred to in the New Testament and he's always referred to in glowing lights. He is a type of Christ. He points to what Christ would accomplish even. Yet when you break his life down, he starts strong and he finishes not making it. It's like the Buffalo Bills losing the Super Bowl four times in a row. That's life for him. Never wins the big game. Never has that ring. Never has that trophy of achievement. But that's not how Moses saw life. He saw life as being full when it was filled with God and God's love, grace, and mercy. And so he's praying fervently here, satisfy us. The word satisfied, it applies mostly to eating and drinking, and it means to eat and drink until you are completely full. Not just not hungry, but stuffed. If you want to put it in connotation, it's eat like you do on Thanksgiving. To the point of almost regret, you're so full that absolutely nothing else can go in. And what he writes is satisfy us, find fulfillment only in him, because the reality is without satisfaction in God, you will never truly rejoice or be glad. This world always comes short. Often, right here on earth, always in eternity. You will not rejoice and be glad without finding satisfaction, and the Hebrew word there, complete fulfillment, full satisfaction in God. Fascinatingly, and I, I, I don't know if it's just a morbid joy or a morbid reading, but I, I read about the ending thoughts and words that are recorded by many of the wealthiest and most famous in the world I have a book that has some of those recordings. I've had the opportunity uh, to listen to Spanish news, and it was eerie then, but I I watched Hugo Chavez's last words, and they were creepy would be the thing, because what you hear is dissatisfaction, no fulfillment, no purpose, no peace. It's empty. Some of the most famous writers that people quote, famous philosophers, you go read the last things they said, And you'll realize that nothing they wrote in their life adds up to a hill of beans. It is desperation, dissatisfaction. It's loss. Why is that? Because true rejoicing and gladness comes only when we are satisfied with God. You may sit there and think, Kenny, you don't know what I have. You might get duped by your things. That's possible. You might get duped for a lifetime but they will ultimately come up short. 
And so without ignoring reality, Moses mentions again, uh, if you look at it, he mentions again the afflictions of this life. In his prayer, he says, help us be happy with these years we have of affliction. These miserable years we have, help us be peaceful in them. He makes sure he's not sugarcoating it. He's well aware of what life brings. He asks that God's splendor be seen by the next generation, God's glory, God, who he is. He wants the children to know God because he knows that for them to live a rejoiceful, glad life, to them to live a life that has any purpose at all, they will need to be overwhelmed with God's glory. And then he looks at the current generation and he asks for God to let them see him working. And you can imagine you're wandering the wilderness and you know you're dying. Your job's to walk till you die so that your children can now have the second chance to enter the promised land because you were too sinful and rebellious and too distrusting of God to enter what he'd given you. And so he prays for them, help them see God working and closes with a plea that God bless us. He says in 17, let the beauty, and when you think of beauty, you think of the favor, the delight, and the approval of God. Let the, the favor, delight, and approval of the Lord our God be upon us. And though we are transient, not permanent, dying in a desert, in our sin under his wrath, yet as his children, partakers of the divine nature in all its glory and beauty. And what Moses is praying for the nation of Israel right here is for them to really be satisfied in God's love and to recognize and feel the true blessing of God with that so they feel his favor and approval and his delight and understand that though under his wrath in that sin, but as God's children, they are partakers of his divine nature in all its glory and beauty. Moses cries out, satisfy us early, early in the day, early in life, so that we can truly be fulfilled. See, oftentimes we look at passages like this, say, yeah, there's an old guy looking back on life and wanting some satisfaction. And what he's saying is, I want the children to be satisfied early with his love, to have their life so focused and centered to understand what true rejoicing and true gladness can be. He cries for God's blessing without making life into a fairy tale. I appreciate that. I've heard too many sermons where people are talking about God pulling a zipper open and dumping gold coins in our lap because, oh, the God's blessing will come pouring down and suddenly life will be great because you'll definitely be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And so there we go. And, and Moses doesn't, doesn't patronize us with that. His life has its afflictions and its sorrows and its journey. He doesn't give us a fake fairy tale, but he says, establish the work of our hands. Give it meaning. But there's still a question that closes this, and it's the same that we started with. What satisfies you? Will you be, or will it be your work, your accomplishments, your emotions, your status, your house, your finances? You name it. What is it that it's going to be to satisfy you, or, and it is an and it is an or, it's not both, or will it be God and Him alone? Does satisfaction come from 
what you do, gain, have, what deeds you own, the cars you drive, house, whatever, or is it God alone? When we're striving to be satisfied in something other than his love, his mercy, his steadfastness, his purpose, anything other than him, we miss every blessing he has given. And actually, what Moses is telling us, we miss blessing altogether. As one writer said it, let nothing trouble you, but get satisfaction in his love every morning. And let nothing dazzle you, but see God's splendor as the only enduring kind. And let nothing move you, for God will establish the work of your hands. Let's-